Thank you for your um, understanding and your sympathy over the past day or so. Um, what happened was that Anne has had um, pneumonia at times. Um, and whenever you're as disabled as she is, as immobile as she is, uh, that's liable to be very uh, bad news. Um, and in fact, the first time she had pneumonia, which was just about 10 years ago, um, I was promised, as it were, warned, um, uh, that uh, you know, she wouldn't be alive in three months. Uh, and that's been, um, that's happened two or three times since. Uh, somebody uh, who was around when the last time it happened two years ago, um, who I met today, reminded me how I'd said, um, well, the medics had kind of written her off, uh, said, you know, it was inevitable that she would simply kind of uh, get weaker and die. Um, and I apparently said, uh, well, it's up to her and God now. <laughs> um, and uh, she and God decided it wasn't going to be the end. Um, <coughs> And, uh, and that, was, that, was, that was good because she, she has exercised uh, this extraordinary ministry um, that she's had as a person who most people who meet her had never heard her speak. Um, and, uh, and yet something happens. Something used to happen between her and people. And so, in a way, I wasn't surprised that, uh, that God should think it was a good idea for her to keep going for a bit longer. Though, I, as she has, I've sensed, felt in recent years, as she has seemed less at ease in herself, um, I have, I suppose, begun to feel that God was being a bit tough on her. But that's God. It comes out in some of the readings for today and some of the things that people said in their postings. Uh, and, uh, but on uh, Friday and Saturday, she'd, she'd, got a bit, she'd had a bit of a fever, which didn't worry me very much because that happens. Um, but uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, she um, was uh, ha having trouble breathing. Um, and so, eventually, uh, early Sunday morning, uh, I took her to urgent care. Um, and um, they, we were all kind of set up for them to do what they usually do, which is send us home. In, well, first of all, they want to admit her to Huntington. And I say, no chance. I've, I've promised her and me that she's never going to hun into Huntington again. No disrespect to Huntington. But, um, but that whatever happened, we were going to look after her at home. Um, so they, they look a bit bemused at you when you say no <laughs> to uh, going to the ER or going to Huntington. Um, and that what we wanted uh, was for them to do as they'd done before, give us the antibiotics, give us the oxygen, and I'll take her home. Uh, and so that was all set up. And I was actually literally uh, walking out the door about half past 12 on Sunday uh, to, to come home to receive the oxygen in order that they, then they could um, send her home. Uh, when one of the nurses said she stopped breathing um, and um, that was it which and I get I think because it was it was obviously it was serious I realized by then it wouldn't have surprised me if she'd um, not responded to the antibiotics very well over these next few days and and had died 
but, but none of us was expecting that she would simply... I, I thought a bit of Jesus' words about um, giving up your spirit. Um, uh, that, uh, that she did that just like that. Um, and I, I, I found what I said in the email to you guys, but um, I, I feel that that's, I think that's, that's obviously tough for me. Um, I had, half of, with half of my mind, I had never believed she was going to die, um, partly because she had kept having these episodes and it never actually happened. Um, almost as if she and God were going to carry on teasing me all my life. <laughs> Um, but the other half of me, the other half of my brain, uh, imagined that one of these times it would be it. Um, uh, and, and this was it. Uh, one of the things that I said in the book called um, Walk On is that uh, talking there about the difficulty about making decisions, about life and death decisions, uh, and... Um, thinking through those issues we, we did, me and our two sons, a few years ago, um, that, that I hoped when the moment came I wouldn't have to make any tough decisions about whether to make life-prolonging, what life-prolonging measures to take. Um, and I suppose, um, well, I am grateful to God that I didn't have to do that. She simply, she and God simply decided, okay, that's it. Uh, I'm out of here. <laughs> um, and, and that, um, that God is going to let us sleep with Jesus for however long it takes until Resurrection Day. Uh, and that's good for her, even though uh, it's uh, tough and or weird for me. Um, and, and even though, especially because uh, the, she can no longer exercise that ministry that she's been exercising, about which I've had lots of emails today, um, and, and no longer be um, the other half, and in some ways the more powerful half, uh, of, the, um, of the ministry that I have. Uh, and I don't know what it'll be like to be me on my own. Um, at the moment, it's simply odd. Um... But I, I uh, having, having imagined yesterday that it would be, uh, that I'd need to take a few days off, I came to the realization kind of overnight that it would actually be um, at least as uh, good for me uh, to do the classes. Um, partly because I was originally thinking I might go back to England this week, but I shan't be able to do it this week. Um, uh, the plan is that we shall have a, a memorial service for her in our church um, on Monday, I think, uh, and then we're going to have a memorial service uh, in my elder son's church in near London, um, which will either be the end of next week or the end of the week after, depending on how long it takes to get the paperwork done and the death certificate signed and all those kind of things, and for them to hand over to me Anne's ashes, um, which I then intend to scatter uh, in the valley where we spent the first um, night of our honeymoon, uh, up which we walked um, the first day of our marriage together. I was looking forward to doing that on my own, but my eldest son told me, 
I'm coming with you. You can't control your children, especially when they're age 40. Um, but that'll be all right. Um, and so um, uh, I expect I'll probably go to London either next, maybe next Wednesday or the following Wednesday. And what we shall do then is uh, they will post on Moodle a video of the lecture, of the lectures, as they use them in the online course, um, which is only about, eight, the, the lectures are only kind of 18 months uh, old. So I haven't had very many great ideas um, <laughs> since then. So they'll be kind of okay. Uh, and I haven't talked about this with the TAs yet. So, uh, okay, Jim, here's your, uh, where, I saw him somewhere. No, he's gone. Oh, oh, of course he's doing that, isn't he? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, I'll, I'll get them to show up and um, you can ha lead some discussions with you about whatever comes out of the lectures or something like that. Uh, but those of you who do drive from Santa Barbara or San Diego or something, or even from Los Robles, um, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you prefer to um, watch the uh, video on Moodle in the privacy of your own home, um, that'll be all right. Um, and then and the next class, you can uh, sign in the roster, and I shall take that as a, a sign of your having actually watched the uh, video. Um, but as I say, I don't, I don't know, I may not know for a few days whether that's next Wednesday. Well, I certainly won't know for a few days whether that will be next Wednesday or the Wednesday following. Um, I don't see, uh, also on reflection now, why we shouldn't carry on having the dessert on Wednesday night. Um, Christine, who has been Anne's caretaker for the last two years uh, with me, who is, who loves Anne with a uh, awesomely profound commitment and is quite devastated. Um, she has been spending three or four hours every morning with Anne doing all the kind of intimate things and all the needing, all the things that Anne's needed for the past two years. Um, and one of the things she does is make scones and she, uh, I mean here's, you know, here's an offer you don't get very often. This morning she said to me, can I come and clean your house occasionally to remind me of, um, you know, coming to your house? Well, I mean, you don't get an offer like that very often, do you? <laughs> uh, and, and she would love to be able to make some scones uh, again. So uh, if you are planning to come for dessert on Wednesday, um, then do. Um, and we'll do the same whenever the other date was. Uh, we'll do the same then. Um, Another, she, um, I knew that, I knew that Christine would be devastated, and so when this had happened at midday yesterday, and I went home to call our two sons, um, I also called Christine, because I knew that she would be really, um, it would be awful to her for Anne simply, as it were, to disappear, uh, so that she could, if she wanted to, come while Anne was still in the urgent care, and she and her husband came, and sat with me then through the afternoon till the mortuary guy came at four o'clock um, holding Anne's hand and praying and things like that and, and that was a great blessing to me um, and uh, to I'd never sat with somebody for that amount of time after they had died um, uh, and it, that was a really I don't I haven't I don't know that I processed it yet, but 
but whenever you have the experience of some of a loved one dying, um, I invite you to think about not letting them whisk you away um, or whisk the body away, uh, but because sitting there for a while, even being aware of the body getting colder, um, but but being able to look at this person who you can see now is at rest uh, was it's an image that I will carry with me and I'm glad of that even though I uh, can't really believe it ha it's happened and think in a minute I shall wake up and and I've thrown all her pills away, and I'm going to be in dead trouble because I've got no pills to give her tonight, and things like that. Um, And does anybody want to say anything out of their own experience or um, about anything in relation to that? <coughs> I'm going to read some dying and burial stories. Um, First, just the beginning of the story of uh, Sarah's burial. Which one of you, one or two of you pointed out was, you wondered why there's all this fuss about this piece of land. And one of the points about it is that it's the, it's the way in which Abraham first comes into actual possession of a bit of the promised land. Whether he ought to be paying money for it is a different question. But uh, it means that there is a place in the land for Sarah and eventually for Abraham and other members of the family in the land that God promised. And the fact that they don't live uh, to be the people who enter into possession of the land when they're alive um, is uh, the edge of that is taken off by the fact that they, uh, that they can sleep there. Sarah lived 127 years. This was the length of Sarah's life. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. That's the beginning of 23, the end of 24. Isaac had come from Beer Laharoi and was settled in the Negev. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. And Rebekah looked up 
And when she saw Isaac, she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man over there walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. A few verses later, 25-7. This is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, son of Zophar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. Much of the story that follows is then about the conflict or, or, or is, um, centers on the conflict between Jacob and Esau when um, Jacob cheats Esau out the blessing. How he can do that, we'll talk about later on. But then here's the end of 35. Jacob t came to his father Isaac at Mamre or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had resided as aliens. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last. He died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. It's often the case that death is something that pulls families apart as they squabble over the remains, uh, the inheritance. But it's neat that Isaac and Ishmael, uh, for, for Isaac and Ishmael and then for Jacob and Esau, they're actually there together uh, in the burying of their father. The end of 49. Jacob charged his uh, sons, saying to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people Bury me with my ancestors in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in the land of Canaan, in the field that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite as a burial site. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were purchased from the Hittites. When Jacob ended his charge to his sons, he dropped his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph threw himself on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded the physicians in his service to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. They spent 40 days in doing this, for that is the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of weeping for him were passed, Joseph addressed the household of Pharaoh, If now I have found favor with you, please speak to Pharaoh as follows. My father made me swear an oath. He said, I am about to die in the tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. 
Now, therefore, let me go up, so that I may bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And then the, end, <coughs> the very end of the book, at the end of Genesis 50. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph made the Israelites swear, saying, When God comes to you, you shall carry up my bones from here. And Joseph died, being 110 years old. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are humbled by the confidence in you that the matriarchs and the patriarchs of Israel had, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah, as well as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. When they did, when they did, did not know, when they, did, when they lived before Jesus rising from the dead, which is the guarantee of our resurrection. We thank you for their hope in the inheritance that you had put before them and for your faithfulness to them. We thank you for the hope in Christ that you have put before the people whom we love, people whom we've lost, and people whom one day maybe we shall lose. And among them I name Anne. And I thank you for your arms of love that surround her as she sleeps. And I pray you to hasten the day of our resurrection when we shall all be able to greet one another and look you in the face with joy in our new bodies as our new selves in your new, wor new world. Now we ask that you'll be with us this evening and give us grace to focus on the scriptures and discover those things that we need to learn from them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, let's sing. Yeah, let him in. <clears throat> Do Lord, oh do Lord, do remember me. Oh do Lord, do Lord, do remember me. Do Lord, do Lord, do remember me. Oh do Lord, remember me. When I'm in trouble, do remember me. When I'm in trouble, do remember me. 
When I'm in trouble, do remember me, oh, do Lord, remember me. When I'm dying, do remember me. When I'm dying, do remember me. When I'm dying, do remember me, oh, do Lord, remember me. When this world's on fire, do remember me. When this world's on fire, do remember me. When this world's on fire, do remember me. Oh, do Lord, remember me. Well, how ironic that the first thing I need to talk about tonight is the image of God in the light of handicap. Uh, I'm on page 42. Um, because this, these are uh, reflections of mine on the, uh, what it means to be in the image of God uh, that arise out of thinking about Anne as a person who is handicapped but as a human being who is still in the image of God. So what does that tell us? It was a, a, a paper that arose out of... Uh, we, we, um, there is um, uh, an organization called L'Arche, um, which... Uh, which was started by a guy called Jean Vanier, who is a French-Canadian. Um, I, think, I think he's French-Canadian rather than French, but he started the, the L'Arche uh, after the Second World War um, in France. Um, he was a professor of philosophy, but he um, uh, took in from um, a mental asylum um, some, uh, some men and uh, decided, as it were, to live with them, uh, to form a community with them. Um, and that started, that, and L'Arche is a series of communities all over the world, there are some in, in California, uh, where um, people who are able-bodied and, as it were, all there mentally, uh, live with people who are physically and or mentally um, handicapped. Um, uh, they uh, in in the um, while, 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 towards the end of the time we were in England, uh, there was a group of um, French and French Canadian and Belgian and British um, people uh, who formed uh, a, a group to think about the theology of handicap. Um, and um, obviously, I had to think of a way of doing that from an Old Testament point of view. Um, and so I uh, wrote a paper for that. Uh, on the image of God in the light of handicap, thinking about uh, what that meant, as I say, in light of, um, uh, of Anne's experience and of experience with Anne. What does the image of God, what, is, what does being in the image of God mean? What's the idea of that in, uh, in Genesis? Well, one evident uh, implication 
uh, of being in the image of God in Genesis uh, is your being in the world in order to do a job for God. In a sense, you have a task of, of making the world. Um, the, the world, it turns out, is not, is not as complete as we sometimes expect because the first human beings in Genesis 1 are sent into the world to subdue the world, to master the world, to take it towards what God wants it to be. It's good, it's very good, but that doesn't mean it's complete. Uh, the task of being in the image of God is a task of making the world. Uh, if the Genesis creation story came into existence in the exile, uh, then maybe that uh, comes as a piece of good news uh, to them. It would seem, if you're in the exile, um, that your world has collapsed, uh, that it's out of control. Um, God wants the uh, exiles to control the world, to see the world as something that they are called to um, be in control of, not that, as it were, it's in control of them or that it's out of control. <laughs> Being in the image of God means having dominion. So if handicapped people are in the image of God, um, we ought to facilitate their having a share uh, in mastering the world, in making the world, in controlling the world. It's easy for them to be the recipients uh, of control um, rather than the exercisers of control. People have to do things for them. Uh, how can we how is it possible to facilitate their sharing in the mastering of the world? We uh, are called as fellow members of the human race to uh, seek to facilitate their doing that. Mastering the world can sound as if it's something um, oppressive, uh, but it wouldn't be God if that's what God intended. Paradoxically, the mastering of the world does indeed, exercise, does indeed involve uh, persuading the entities in the world to be a bit more, bit more friendly to one another, lions to lie down with lambs, that kind of thing. Um, but that is actually in order to be generous and liberating uh, rather than oppressive. The mastering of the world is one that's done in God's way, generous and liberating rather than oppressive. It's also uh, done, the mastering of the world, uh, Genesis would assume, in a trusting way. I mentioned in that top paragraph there the two um, great German theologians of the, of the last third of the 20th century, uh, Pannenberg and Moltmann. Uh, the point from Pannenberg is that trust is involved uh, in living in the world. We live by faith, trusting in, trusting in something outside ourselves. We're not self-sufficient. Faith doesn't just come in when you come to believe in Christ, when you become a Christian. Being human uh, involves living in trust trusting in something outside ourselves, not being self-sufficient. Handicapped people model that. They have no choice but to trust. Uh, and so they model something about being human to the rest of us who can more easily pretend um, that we are self-sufficient and that we don't need to trust anything outside ourselves. We don't have to live by faith in that sense. They have to. But there's then um, a kind of upside-down implication of that also, um, Maltman's point, that the Genesis 1 creation story makes clear uh, the task, activity, um, is not everything. Now, this is very un-American. Um, God is not 24-7. Well, obviously, God is 24-7. God is, trust, God is um, 
protecting you, looking after you, being with you, available to you 24-7. But God doesn't work 24-7. Isn't that weird? You'd have thought that God would do that, wouldn't you? After all, we do. Um, but the uh, being in the image of God um, Im implies 24-6 um, or 16-6 or 8-6 or something like that. Task isn't everything. And one of the ways in which handicapped people, again, uh, illustrate for us what it means to be in the image of God is by their inactivity at the end of her life and could do nothing. Uh, she could only occasionally in the last year or so would I reckon that when she raised an eyebrow she was doing that deliberately. You can imagine I give her quite a lot of opportunity to raise her eyebrows. Um, but the, but if, if there was anything, any part of her body that she had any control of in the last year or two, it was only that eyebrow. She could do nothing. And yet, paradoxically, then, she has exercised this powerful ministry uh, in the seminary and, and in our church um, by, by inactivity. And handicap turns upside down all the, way, the ways that we think about these things. Uh, two uh, student friends of ours when we were in England um, lived on a canal boat. Um, uh, that they, these are um, boats that um, were, were originally made a century or more ago um, uh, and were key to, to the Industrial Revolution, to carrying stuff around uh, Britain, as I think in some parts of the East Coast they probably uh, are. Um, and... Um, but this, and so we, we, we went on this, um, this boat of our friends from time to time. Uh, the, it used to go at four miles an hour. I used to find it totally infuriating. <laughs> I don't mind going at 80 miles an hour. I don't mind standing still. I hated four miles an hour <laughs> and loved it. You can, as you go down this canal, you can, you can look at every blade of grass as you go past it. <laughs> it drove me crazy. But Anne loved it. And Maltman comments, those who live slowly get more out of life. She saw things that I wouldn't have seen because I'd have been dashing past. Image of God uh, involves task. Uh, handicapped people illustrate that. Second, the image of God uh, involves, being in the image of God involves being on a journey. At least um, when you read Genesis and Exodus and so on, you find that humanity, the humanity that was made in the image of God is on a journey. Uh, and you actually find that in a way God is on a journey too. At least in this sense that, um, that, that God operates one way or in various sorts of ways in Genesis, but then operates in some different sorts of ways in Exodus. The, the context is different, the kind of things that God has to do um, are different. For human beings, and in some sense even for God, <coughs> for human beings being in the image of God involves being on a journey, and it fits with that that you get the impression from Scripture that to be God is, is, is involves being on a journey. Um, God, God has some freedom, some openness to do different things at different times. 
who God is, is realized, it becomes real, it's expressed contextually and cumulatively. Now don't worry, this doesn't mean that God changes. At least for those of you who think for God changing is bad news, don't worry. In any bad sense, God doesn't change. <laughs> but it does mean that there are vast resources within God <coughs> in terms of what it means to be God, vast capacities, and, um, and God doesn't give expression to them all at once because they don't all need to, give expre to, be, to, to have expression given to, given to them at once. They are given expression in different contexts. God's um, capacities are realized, made real, expressed contextually and also cumulatively because you know one sort of things about God by the end of Genesis but by the time you get to the end of Exodus you know rather more, some extra things about God that you didn't know before. Something of that is, is expressed in the very fact um, that God has a name or at least in the particular name that God has. Um, God's having a name is uh, a marker of being a human being. Uh, I'm sorry, God's having a name is a marker of being a person. <laughs> a, a, a person has a name, it expresses who they are. Uh, there um, are some names that have significance because they have some uh, inherent meaning of their own. There are probably some people here whose name is, say, Grace or Faith. And obviously that kind of name has some meaning. There were lots of Israelite kings and Israelite ordinary people whose names meant something, expressed something of their parents' hopes for them or something of that kind. Uh, but, but even when your name doesn't express something like that, uh, your name conjures up for other people who you, who you are. Uh, before we started this class, many of you didn't know what John Golding Gay meant. But now once somebody says John Golding Gay, you quake in your shoes. Because you, you know what that expression means. Uh, it's a very um, precious thing that God tells us his name, the name Yahweh. And it's therefore tragic that people said that they wouldn't use it. Get a bit too close to God calling him by name. Call me Yahweh, says God. No, we'd rather call you Lord. Let's push you away a bit, uh, we say. God's having a name suggests God's individuality and God's um, desire to be in relationship. But there is something significant about the particularity, the, the particular, that particular name, the name Yahweh, uh, which is explained, um, we will find when we do get into Exodus, as meaning, as meaning something like, I am who I am, or I will be what I who I will be, or I will be what I will be. Um, which, by its very um, mystery, uh, points towards that uh, wondrous complexity and depth of God's person. I will be what I will be. I couldn't tell you just like that, all that, all that I will be, as it were, says God. I'll be what I'll be. I'll be whatever you need. Uh, in different contexts, I will be different things, because I have all this resource inside me. That's true about God. And it's true about being in the image of God, <coughs> particularly the significance of journey, if you're a handicapped person. Change issues from being on a journey. When Jean Vanier took those guys out of a mental asylum in, um, in Paris at the end of the 1940s, he then watched them blossom. 
they came out, they came to be human beings because they were in relationship with the guys uh, who were in this little community with them. For Anne, um, being handicapped was a more negative journey um, in a number of ways. I've been struck again by emails today from people who knew her when she wasn't as disabled as she's been all the time we've been here in Fuller. Well, no, not quite, because one, one of them was from somebody who was here in the early years, just about 10 years ago. And people commented on things that aren't the, aren't the things that I first think of when I think about Anne. Um, like, her, well, I think about her being feisty, which she was, and somebody commented on her sense of humor. Um, and this student who was here 10 years ago commented on her politeness. Now, in a marriage, very often, uh, the couple are opposites. Um, and, and I realized, I'd never thought of Anne being polite, but yes, that's a very good discussion. She is polite. That, must, that was one of the reasons why her, seriously, parents didn't want her to marry me because I wasn't polite. <laughs> uh, but, but nobody who's known her over the last 10 years would know any of that because the journey that she's been on has been this painful one of more and more losing capacity. Uh, so, uh, if you're a, whether you're a handicapped person emerging from an experience of being in an institution and being able to blossom, um, or whether you're a person who was full of life and loses those capacities, you're somebody who is on a journey, uh, but then a journey that, as I've, as I've indicated in talking about the ministry that she's exercised here, can still be um, a, a positive journey. Well, it's negative and positive at the same time. It's one of the things I have had to get used to in recent years is that what God has been doing with Anne is his business and he, he won't be answerable to me about it. Um, and he has taken her on this tough journey that has, um, but it's a journey that has meant her being a, a blessing to people. Uh, changing whatever kind it is um, is part of being a person. Part of being in the image of God uh, is change, not, not uh, staticness. A third thing about the, the image of God um, is relationship. The reference to the image of God in Genesis 1 talks about God then making the first human beings male and female. Um, and uh, for us, in our cultural context, uh, the relational aspect of that is, is hugely important. Um, because, as I probably said to you before, um, we're all scared of relationship and therefore we like to talk about it and read about it, uh, even though none of us is actually, um, even though we then all like to retreat to our individual rooms. Um, being in relationship is part of being in the image of God. Uh, and disabled people provide us with an illustration, an embodiment of that, because for disabled people, uh, relationships are key. Um, they, they can't, um, in any sense, cope on their own. There are senses in which we can cope on our own, uh, we who are not disabled. Um, but um, disabled people can't. Relationships are key to them. Our humanity is actualized in relationship. As is the case with God, I will be with you, says God, 
So God kind of, be, kind of becomes God in relationship with us. Uh, and while that's true about marriage, it's not just true about marriage. Um, and uh, it's significant that when Genesis 1 talks about male and female and procreation, the kind of things it says about procreation, it also says uh, about the animals. It's not just human beings who procreate. <coughs> and so, uh, further, the fact that disabled people are less likely to marry and have children um, than people who aren't disabled uh, doesn't mean that they aren't um, capable of being procre procreative in other sorts of senses. As Jean Vanier uh, put it, there are other forms of fecundity, other ways of being fertile. Uh, and those of us who don't marry uh, need to be aware of that, um, that there, there is a, a potential fruitfulness in our lives um, that, that is paradoxically made possible precisely by our, by our not being married or by our not having children. Disabled people sometimes illustrate that. The one, one key aspect of the nature of marriage uh, of this relationship that Genesis 1 presupposes is the diversity of it. It's, uh, it's men and women. It's male and female. <coughs> and they remind us of the significance then of the diversity within the image of God. The image of God is not just one kind of entity. Only when you have men and women together, not just in marriage but in general, <coughs> do, you have the do you have God imaged. Um, Likewise, if it's right that disabled people embody some significant things about being human, then it's only when you have um, ordinary, able-bodied, able-minded people and uh, disabled people, handicapped people together, are you likely to have the image of God uh, represented. And fourthly, the bo fourthly uh, body. It used to be the case that when people discussed the nature of the image of God, uh, they would say, well, of course, the image of God lies in something like your spirituality or your ethics, your capacity to be in relationship with God or something like that. Whatever it is, it's something non-material, non-physical. Um, uh, uh, this was a, a weird assumption, really, that, um, uh, that, that, that was made. Because if there's one thing that's characteristic of an image, it's that it's physical. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's a statue. It's a thing there that you can see and feel. Um, and it's likely that when Genesis talks about humanity made in the image of God, it's referring at least as much to the physical nature uh, of humanity um, as to anything spiritual uh, about us. Not, not that that means that God is physical, but something more like that God um, is, that the human beings are the kind of beings that God would be if God were physical. Uh, the kind of physical beings that can represent God, can image God in the world. Um, and that uh, provides you with a neat uh, link with the notion of incarnation. Because if humanity... Are, if human beings were entities that could, in that sense, represent God, 
then it's not so surprising if, well, actually elsewhere in Genesis, as people are noted in the postings for today, God can appear as a human being. It's almost kind of natural for God to, to be able to appear as a human being. If God is going to appear as something, a human being is what God will appear as, not a kangaroo. Uh, now, of course, God can be likened to a lion or a tiger, not a kangaroo, but that's purely for cultural reasons. Why God didn't become... Why God didn't reveal himself first in Australia, I don't know. Um, but uh, but God, God, the, the, the scriptures do talk about God being like a lion, like, like a tiger and so on. <coughs> but not with the systematicness with which they talk about God being um, represented as, a human, as, human, as, a human being, as human beings. And thus with it being metaphysically not problematic for God to become a human being. It was kind of moral, morally problem, pro, uh, problematic in the sense that God had to pay a price to become a human being. But it wasn't, as it were, metaphysically difficult because human, humanity from the beginning was made as the kind of creature who could represent God. The body, we are much uh, better at being aware now maybe than Christians were 50 or 100 years ago is essential to the nature of humanity. It's not the dispensable shell. When we sat there with Anne yesterday afternoon with her body, with which the life had left, well, when the first, when, when, when she stopped breathing, what actually happened is that a nurse said, she's gone. And, and we kind of say that, but I, do, I don't believe that. Um, the, the breath had gone, the, she had surrendered her life back to God. But, but that person was lying there was still at least half of the real person. We, our bodies um, are integral to who we are. That's why uh, it's going to be resurrection and not an ethereal, um, spiritual, heavenly life that we come to um, on Resurrection Day. Uh, the body is essential to who we are. Disabled people are especially aware of their bodies. They bring home to us that fact that our bodies are not just a, a disposable shell, that our bodies are key to being human, that our bodies, that we pray with our bodies. Now, we don't very much. Israelites did. You know, they prayed like this, or they prayed like this. They, they didn't pray sitting in that posture that, we, that you're all in now. How can anybody pray sitting, an Israelite would say? It, do, it doesn't involve the body. We have an ambivalent relationship with our bodies in various kinds of senses. We may be ashamed of them. We may feel that they lead us into sin. Um, we, we have illnesses of our bodies and so on. And handicapped people, obviously, feel more ambivalent about their bodies than anybody. Um, they invite us, though, to see ourselves in our humanity um, as in the image of God. And then as part of the human body and part of the Christian body. <clears throat> uh, the best book that there is on the image of God is that book that I've mentioned at the bottom of that sheet, uh, The Liberating Image by Richard Middleton who uh, helps you to see the kind of resonances that the notion of image of God would have had um, in, in Genesis. Uh, there's a weird thing about theologians. There are many weird things about theologians. But 
One of them is that they, go around, that they will go around talking Latin. Um, they will talk about imago dei, or for that matter, missio dei. Um, I don't know why they do that, but it's a warning to you, or it's a reminder to you, that when they talk about imago dei, or missio dei, they're not talking about anything in the Bible. They're talking about a doctrinal package that they have brought to the Bible. Um, and uh, um, as with the word fall, about which I will say something later on this evening, um, it isn't necessarily the case that the things that people say about Imago Dei or Missio Dei are wrong or unscriptural. Um, but they aren't there, at least with regard to Imago Dei, they, they, they are read into the text rather than read out of the text. Um, and uh, so just be careful, be, be aware of how easy it is to read huge amounts um, out of an expression like uh, image of God um, and, and to be reading out things which may be, may be true but, but may uh, miss things that would have been important to the guy who wrote Genesis and to the people who first, first uh, had it read to them. Um, <clears throat> in light of that, uh, what I'd like us to do for two or three minutes just to stop me talking for a bit is to have you, let you talk with each other for a little bit about how you do hear people talking about the image of God um, and whether, what, what, if, or maybe when, what's the first thing you think of when you think of image of God um, and whether what you think of or what you hear people saying has got anything to do with Genesis. Um, and if it hasn't got much to do with Genesis, where it comes from. Talk to each other for two or three minutes about that. Thank you. 
Okay, okay, okay. Anybody want to say anything about that or ask anything about that? That's true, though that makes it the worse when, uh, say, British people take the gospel to Africa oh, yeah. and give the impression that God is like a white man and that this is the way to build a church and things like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's easy to, for us now to see that the guys who did that two or three hundred years ago were crazy. Um, but, but what's more important is for us to look for ways in which we are doing that now. You know, we, we are presumably doing the same kind of thing. Um, and so, so we're always in need of a perspective on ourselves from people out, out of other cultures to rescue us from the limitations of where we are. Yeah. <coughs> mm -hmm. 
regards to the image of God, it was commented that what's, what we have that's attributed to God or being most like his image, God's image, is our ability to reason mm-hmm. and to create. Mm-hmm. To think of something that mm-hmm. never existed mm-hmm. and then to formalize that or mm-hmm. have it materialize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that would be, I think it would be true to say those are things that are true about us um, because they're true about God, because we've made God like. But uh, it would be unwise to put too much store on that's why the guy in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 talked about image of God um, when uh, there's probably something a bit more contextual about that. That's why one needs to distinguish between the, the broad kind of imago dei sort of idea and the particularity of what um, Genesis was seeking to express. Yeah? It strikes me that one of the places that we get confused around just going in the image is that um, we assume that that's the broken part. Yes, yes, and, um, yes. And I think that carries through in our church culture um, pretty significantly and in even sociology. Can you hear over there? Can you try and the the the, the, the um, uh, in in church in we tend in Christian faith we tend to assume that the that disability is part of the brokenness the fallenness if you like of humanity and that carries over into church life. And and that's the part of the story that we need to recover. Yes. Um, and not presume that the image of God in the handicap is um, some kind of liberal apologetic, but that it, it is in fact truly part of God's identity. Right. Mm-hmm. I just want to add, I think sort of what, what she was saying, I think I have spent a lot of time sort of kind of trying to remove myself from the idea that my, that I only reflect the image of God if I reason or create. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. I think that's sort of what I get from handicapped people. Mm-hmm. And even in myself, like recognizing that even if I never serve God, that at the end of my life, I'll look at my body or my physical self and go, it reflects his image, whether or not I've done good things, because I think that we were talking about, I tend to have like a theology of dualism, of God is spiritual and we are not, and we're right. really spiritual right. if we yeah. think good thoughts or right. do good things, right. instead of sort of seeing it like, when my organs function, that's the image of God. <laughs> <laughs> that's, when my organs function, that's the image of God, that's good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's have a look at page 43, where it says at the top, some, some convictions about Genesis 1 to 11. Um, there are two pages of, of this. I'm going to do one before the break and one after the break. Uh, and so it's, it's um, as it said, it's what it says, some convictions about Genesis 1 to 11, which will overlap with some issues that people raised in their postings. And on the way through, I'll say some things in relation to things people said in their postings. <clears throat> one, Genesis 1 to 11 is not a piece of timeless doctrinal teaching or primitive science or sophisticated science, but a preaching of the gospel, the telling of a gospel story. (coughs) We need to see how it brought good news and challenge to people, for instance, in the time of the monarchy and the exile and the time after the exile. Then we may be able to see how it addresses good news and challenge to Christians today. For instance, over world food needs, or global warming, or the place of women, or the search for meaning, or workaholism, 
none of those were issues when Genesis 1 was written. All of them are issues to which Genesis 1 speaks. Um, and it's uh, useful to, uh, maybe important, to keep that distinction in mind. Second, Christians have separated off Genesis 1 to 3 from Genesis 4 to 11. But Genesis 1 to 11 needs to be read as a whole. The chapters are the story of God's original relationship with the world as a whole, and they provide the background to Israel's story. <coughs> they describe God's relationship to the world, chapter 1, to individuals, chapters 2 and 3, to families, chapter 4, to societies, chapter 5, and they show how the good creation got spoiled in each respect. Chapters 9 to 11 then go through that again, the other side of God's realizing that humanity is radically evil inclined. Now, one person asked me to provide my own answer to the question, what have these 11 chapters got to say about sin then? I love it and hate it when people say, come on, tell us your answer to these questions. Um, hate it, because I usually don't know the answer, that's why I ask you the answer, you see. Uh, I don't have a secret book of answers. <laughs> but, but one of the things that I think is one of the, bit, the significant bits of the answer that that paragraph uh, points towards is the way in which the chapters as a whole look at uh, sin in these various realms, these various contexts. Um, that is, of um, a relationship with the world, individuals, families, societies. Um, wherever you look, um, you see uh, things going wrong as a result uh, of <coughs> humanity declining to accept God's limitations upon it, deciding humanity making decisions for itself. That's the essence of sin, though the word doesn't come in Genesis 3, is uh, making your own decisions. Um, and, and that has then implications in all these different realms. Um, somebody said, well, wh why on earth did God, having discovered, I can't quite remember the, 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 the precise words the person used, but I think by implication it, it related to what God says in chapter 8, verse 21. Uh, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, because the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. Well, that's illogical. This person pointed out, in fact, it's totally illogical. In fact, it's, to to it's so totally illogical, the NIV alters it. Uh, and NRSV, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. The NIV has got, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, although the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. The, um, the, the, the Hebrew word there, uh, is the word key, um, and uh, <coughs> that's a word ver very like hoti in Greek, which may help some of you, won't help some others of you. Is that how you write a T in Greek? It is, isn't it? Does that look right? Does that look like Greek? Doesn't look like Greek to me. That's near enough. You know what I mean. Um, that is, hoti uh, and ki both usually mean either that or for, that or because. Now, um, maybe occasionally ki means although. I'm not convinced, but maybe occasionally it does. 
<laughs> but if it does, uh, 999 times out of 1,000, it means because or that, not though. And the only reason for changing the translation here is because of being unable to cope with the grace of God. Because what God says is, I said, well, okay, no, they're, they're incorrigible. I'll just have to not, um, I'll just have to put up with them. God is so loving and merciful, you see. I'll never again curse the ground because of humankind, because the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. It doesn't do me any good to curse the world, because, you know, it's not going to make them any different. I'm going to have to think of something else. <laughs> Which, of course, is what then goes, God goes on to do in the Abraham story and through the Israel story and into the Christ story. Um, Uh, one or two people asked about the rainbow in that connection. Um, one person with, um, with some disbelief, I think, was saying, does that mean the rainbow like the rainbow that we see? Yes, it means the rainbow that we see. <laughs> and, but seriously, guys, that means that when you see the rainbow, you're, I mean, this is, this is gospel. You're invited to think, wow, God has put his bow away, put his arrows away. You're invited to be thrilled when you see the because because it's a bow, but there's no arrows, there's no string in it. God has God has put it put it away. Um, and somebody was <coughs> puzzled as to why God needed the reminder, why why it was a sign for God, to see why it was a, a sign for human beings. Um, well, there's lots of things really that are. I think the the, the Bible as a whole works a lot like that. That. Um, it's part of, again, it, perhaps it's a bit like that thing, those things we were talking about, about being physical, that God is God's involved. God, God's um, kind of human life. God, God likes reminders. That's why prayer, you know, when you pray, you remind God about things. You remind God of why he should answer your prayers. You say, <coughs> in Christ's name or for your glory's sake. Well, why are you saying that? Why are you praying at all? All, all those, are, the presupposition of all that is that... Um, is that God is a person who's kind of in, interac in, in interaction. And um, the rainbow, so, so God, God himself looks at the rainbow. Um, it reminds God of, of a commitment that God has made. <coughs> Number three. These are, obviously lots of these things I'm saying tonight are heresies. Um, they're all nevertheless true. Except that 10% 10 10 of the things that I say are wrong. The trouble is I don't know which 10%. Number three, the story shows that it is not because God's plan is being worked out that our lives and the world are what they are. Um, I mean, if the, world, if the way the things have worked out in the world was God's plan, it was a very weird plan, wasn't it? God's plan is not being worked out, or rather God did not have a plan. That's the heresy. Uh, <coughs> God wanted to work out the plan with human beings. God did have some goals, and God is committed to achieving those goals, but God is flexible about how to achieve them. <laughs> and that's why God can have a change of mind from time to time. That's the, the theological implication, I suggest, of uh, the way the Genesis works. Uh, several people commented on, yep. Could you decipher the difference between a will and a plan? Uh... will and a plan. Yeah, I mean, a will is actually, 
a, making a commitment to achieve it, a plan is a thing that you'd like to happen. Yeah? Um, uh, but but aside, what I'm, what I'm saying is that in, both, in connection with both of those, God has some things that God wants to achieve. That God, well, God has got some things that God is insisting on achieving. That's the will thing. Uh, and, God, or, and, and God has got some things that God wants to achieve. That's the plan thing. God is going to bring about the fulfillment of his purpose. But God is endless and negotiable about how to get from A to B. God, is, God is, is, has the will to get to B and a plan that, that, that to get to B. But how to get from A to B, God can be infinitely flexible about. Uh, number four, the story shows that the background to Israel's story was always that God had a purpose for the whole world, even though that's not up front in most of the Old Testament. Israel was thus the same as the church, which also usually forgets that the world is God's concern. Number five, Genesis 1 doesn't say that God created the world out of nothing, but neither does it, um, there's another Latin phrase, ex nihilo, right? So you know when you see these Latin phrases, aha! They're bringing something in from somewhere or other here. <coughs> but neither does it deny that. It's not actually interested in where God's raw material came from. It's interested in what God did with it. This is one of many points of which we must be aware of imposing Christian doctrinal questions on Genesis if we want to hear its own message. Number six, God created a good world, but this did not mean a world without pressures, problems and temptations, earthquakes, volcanoes and death in nature. Romans 8 doesn't say that, God's crea that creation's groaning issued from human sin, and the Bible doesn't say that creation is fallen. It was a good world with its pressures and problems and temptations because those are the stuff of what takes people towards maturity. You cannot get mature sitting on Malibu Beach. I know, I have tried. <laughs> Number seven, human beings were not created inherently immortal, but death would have been averted or succeeded by a transformed life if people had eaten of the tree of life. Number eight, there have been many views about what the idea of being in God's image means, and the views reflect the convictions of their day. That is, it lies in rationality, or morality, or spirituality, or creativity, or physicality, or relationship. Those are all convictions that come out of particular cultures so people read them into the notion of the image of God. I suggest we take the idea as a stimulus to thought. We need to take the image as an invitation to read the rest of the Old Testament story to discover who God is and who human beings are and to reflect on the implications. That is how we discover a biblical theology of what it means to be human. You cannot get a theology of what it means to be human out of the phrase in God's image. Well, that undermines rather a lot of systematic theology books. What, what do I care? <laughs> yes? Well, the cursing of uh, the cursing of the ground relates to the fact that <clears throat> that they're not going that, that it's going to be hard to um, make things grow. It's it's a big jump to it. it I mean, you, it, it's it's a big jump to um, creation being fallen. Oh, I didn't mean to 
Okay. Oh, the, yeah. The ground being cursed. Mm -hmm. I don't know, because that language to me makes it sound like previously it wasn't cursed. Mm -hmm. so well, previously it would grow things easily. There's lots of water. Yeah. It would grow things easily. Right. Now, um, it's not going to grow things easily. You're going to have to work hard for it. Right. Number nine. It's very odd that God tells Adam and Eve that they can't have the knowledge of good and evil because that is a good thing that people are encouraged to have through the rest of the Old Testament. I suspect that this is a test like Genesis 22 when God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac. If they agree not to take it, they can have it. Of course, just as God doesn't intend Abraham in the end to sacrifice Isaac, but he wants to know if Abraham will. Of course, paradoxically, they get it anyway. They do get the knowledge of good and evil, but, they, but in the process of getting the thing that they wanted and God wanted them to have, they get, they get it by the wrong route and thereby everything is kind of spoiled. Um, anything about any of those? Anything? Yep. Uh, you mean number three? Yeah. With the idea that God, God is all... Well, well, I, don't, I kind of don't have to because the Bible doesn't say that God is all-knowing. Well, yeah, well, I, I, like I say, I don't worry too much. This is about if theologians can say things. And, uh, uh, and I'll just read the Bible. I'm just a simple Bible-believing Christian feminist. Um, <coughs> the, 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 the background to that is that, that theology... All our theology is formed, uh, all our theologies are formed both by what you could call natural theology, natural revelation philosophy, and things out of scripture. Uh, and uh, the, the notion that, that God is by definition all-knowing and all that, those, those things, unchanging and those things, uh, are some things that come out of philosophy, they come out of Greek philosophy, and become established parts of Christian theology. Now, there's something in them. It's no good. One wouldn't want to, dis to wholly to dismiss them. Uh, and I do believe that God, against open theism, I do believe that God can, can know the future uh, when God chooses to do so. Um, open theism and um, classical theism, which is part of what we're talking about here, are both philosophical positions that, are, that get read into Scripture by different sorts of people. Uh, and so, they, so this process illustrates the importance of seeking to test the things that seem obvious. It's always the things that seem obvious that are the problem. Um, the things that provide the building blocks for thought that are the problem. Uh, and, and what one needs to do is come to test them uh, by scripture. Um, yeah. Okay, go away. Come back in 20 minutes. <clears throat>